the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's never been, nor will there ever be, a more profoundly powerful message. No other truth has transformed so many lives for so many centuries. Nations have risen and fallen on the foundations of the gospel. Families have been brought together and others torn apart by its exclusivity. And yet it embraces the lowest of sinners as freely as it does the most noble among us. It is a message that many have devoted their lives to spreading and others have died defending. No other message has affected the world or the human heart in such astounding ways and yet it is profoundly and beautifully simple. It's shocking, but it's not confusing. It's brilliant, but it is not complex. And it is the only message that offers this world real hope. And this precious, priceless jewel, this most valuable treasure that, that carries with it the only hope for the future of every human being on the planet Earth, has been entrusted to us. We are responsible for this message. Could there be any higher calling? I think not. And what every person in our neighborhood needs today, what, what every man and woman and child that is hurting and lost this morning in our city and in the surrounding areas, what every one of them needs is in this building right now, sitting in these pews. We possess what they need, but they don't know it, and we don't always know how to offer it. And therein lies our juxtaposition with the world. It's a conundrum, it's a quandary, it's a, a dilemma of epic importance if you consider what is at stake. So what do we do? with this gospel? How do we let them know? How do we connect uh, the dots between what we have in the church and what is needed in the world? How do we bridge that gap? We're going to come back to that question a little bit later in the message this morning, but I believe that the first century followers of Christ understood the urgency and the weight of the need better than most. And although... uh, The approach was different with every individual, even those in Scripture. They never seemed to miss an opportunity, even under the most hostile conditions, to share the gospel. And Stephen, the protagonist in our story today, he was no exception. We're working our way through the book of Acts. So let's turn to the seventh chapter of Acts this morning. If you have your Bibles, and we'll have it up on the screen if you don't. As we continue our series, the Acts of the Apostles, and and we'll see how Stephen, a leader in the early church, 
one of the, the seven men chosen and appointed to serve the congregation by the elders, how he handles himself when confronted by those uh, averse to the gospel. All right, the title of our message today is Testify, which seemed to be the primary, primary occupation of those early Christians, while every other concern, like how they were going to eat, where they would sleep, how they would pay their bills, how they would literally sometimes stay alive, you know, just, just the minor details. All of those cares of life that we occupy ourselves with constantly seem to almost be an afterthought, subservient to the activity of the gospel for these early believers. It's astounding. So let's pick up our story in chapter 7. And you'll recall from last week that a conspiracy had arisen against Stephen, uh, who chapter 6 says was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And yet there were those from the synagogue who wanted to silence him. So uh, they cooked up a plan to testify uh, against him, to falsely accuse him of blasphemy. And then they planted uh, false witnesses to testify against him further, ultimately bringing him to trial before the religious council. And so as we Pick the narrative back up. We see Stephen before the council being questioned by the high priest as to whether or not the accusations against him were true. And just like every other believer in those early days of the church that were brought before the religious court and questioned, instead of mounting a personal defense, instead of protesting the charges, you know, instead of crying for mercy and bemoaning his predicament, Stephen begins to testify. He makes sure that everyone is listening. He captures their attention and then he begins to testify. And what does that mean, to testify? Well, first, it means we tell a story. When we testify, we simply tell a story. And Stephen simply begins to tell them a story. And this is exactly what Jesus did when he testified to the crowds. He would tell them stories. It's what Peter did when he testified to those gathering around him. It's what Paul did numerous times before the authorities that questioned him each time he was arrested. They all told stories. And of course they weren't just, you know, random anecdotes to pass the time or to stall the authorities. They were stories that they used to convey the truth about the message of the gospel. And that's what Stephen was doing here. So let's read it together. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Okay, so in answering the high priest about these accusations against him, Stephen starts out here in a way that it may seem odd to us at first glance. 
Because he goes all the way back to Abraham and begins recounting a selective history of many of the Old Testament leaders that preceded the Christ. And what seems even more unusual about this is the people that Stephen was addressing were religious leaders. Men who had already been well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. So they would have already known the story that Stephen was relating to them. But this is where a a good study of Hebrew culture comes into the picture because there was a long biblical tradition among the Old Testament prophets and the leaders uh, of Israel of reciting their history any time they testified to what God was doing among them in the moment or what He was about to do. And doing so would bring credibility and context to the testimony. We see it in uh, Nehemiah 9, uh, Daniel 9, Psalm 105, Psalm 106, and and even outside of biblical scripture in the writings of Josephus, the first century Jewish scholar, many other early writers as well. Of course, we see it um, in Jesus himself. Uh, He was using the same method of testimony in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus as he's testifying to the truth of his own gospel to two of his disciples that don't recognize him post-resurrection. Luke says... Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, referring to Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay? So it wasn't uncommon for a Hebrew to use this approach when sharing a testimony. And that is exactly what Stephen was doing here before the high priest. He's making sure that his story and the presentation of it was culturally relevant to his audience. That it was delivered in a way that would make sense to them. The religious leaders understood the recitation of scriptural history in any significant story that would be worth listening to. And Stephen understood that as well because he understood who his audience was. And this is a significant point for us to consider when reading this text. Because just like Stephen, it's really important that we understand our audience anytime we share our testimony. Uh, it was like 20 to 25 years ago, something like that. I went to Central America on a missions trip. And we were going down there to build a church out in the bush in the middle of nowhere. For these just people were destitute. They lived in plywood shacks, never seen anything like it. And so we were building this church, and that was all that we were there to do. And every evening, it was such a big deal that there were people from America there building this building that the locals would come from miles away would walk in to see what was going on and it occurred to us after the first or second night boy we ought to be having some church services for these people because they're all showing up so this building which is in the process of being built but we're going to have church and so we're divvying up the assignments and of course I get picked to preach first and I am completely unprepared It was not in my mind at all. Learned a lesson there. I was not ready to preach to these people. I didn't know anything really about them. I was just there to build a building. And so we grab an interpreter, and all of these people gather, and I'm getting ready to give a sermon that I thought was really going to be great. And I'm standing up there with a a T-shirt with the sleeves cut off, first of all, because we're building a building, and it's really hot. And I have tattoos all over my arms because a long time ago, 25 years ago, I thought that was cool. Well, nobody bothered to tell me, at least at that time in that culture, the only people that had tattoos were thugs, gang members, criminals. <laughs> like really bad people were the only people that would have tattoos or could afford them. And so I'm standing up there feeling pretty good about myself with all of my tattoos. 
And everybody's looking at me kind of strange, like this guy's getting ready to preach. And I had no idea why they were looking at me funny. And so then the only thing I knew to do, because I really didn't have anything prepared, was to share a story. And back then I was a police officer. And so I had lots of stories to share from the time I was a police officer and, you know, sharing the gospel with people and all of my experiences that I had. And so I thought, well, that'll be great. I'll tell them a story because then I don't have to memorize notes or anything. I can just recite the story. So I'm standing up there with all my tattoos and I start talking about being a police officer. Well, no one bothered to tell me that the only people that they disliked more than thugs and criminals <laughs> were the police. Excellent. So there I am, passionately pouring out my heart, this story, and nobody is listening. Because they can't get past the fact that there is this thug, this criminal, who happens to be a police officer, talking to us. I mean, the interpreter's looking at me funny, you know, the whole thing. And I didn't know why till later when everybody laughed at me quite the rest of the time we were there. The point is, if we don't understand who our audience is, we're far less likely to, to be able to relate our testimony to them in a way that they can receive. Okay, so it's really important that we don't disregard our listeners' background and culture whenever we share our story. All right, and again, Stephen certainly understood that well. Additionally, as we keep reading here, there's another really compelling pattern that develops in Stephen's testimony to the religious leaders who were questioning him, and that is that everything that he was saying, even though they didn't know it at the time, ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ. Stephen was carefully selecting every character and every event in this historical overview because he understood how each person in the story and each event symbolized and pointed to the Christ. Okay? When we testify, our story always points to Jesus Christ, or at least it should. Our testimony, the events that we recall in our story, the people that we interact with throughout the story should all relate to what Christ has done in our lives. And we'll see this as we continue with Stephen's testimony in verse 9. Let's read it together. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Okay, again, if, if we just read this story by Stephen that he's telling casually, if we read it casually, it seems like he's stating the obvious to everyone present because they already know these stories. 
But the truth is every word, every part of the story is carefully chosen and constructed by Stephen to take the focus off of him and place it squarely onto God and ultimately onto Jesus Christ, which we'll see in a moment. Okay, first of all, he starts out his story in verse 2 with the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And before we get to Abraham, we should understand the phrase, the God of glory, in itself is very significant here in this story. It would appear to us to be an obvious description of God. But the truth is that phrase only appears one other time in all of Scripture. It's in Psalm 29.3. Why is that significant? Because Stephen has just been accused of blasphemy. And Psalm 29.3, which would have been known by the religious leaders, uniquely describes Yahweh, the one true God, as the ultimate power and authority, sovereign over all the earth, over all of nature. And it even alludes to him being more powerful than Baal, the storm god, who was widely worshipped at the time in Syria and in Palestine. So Stephen is answering the court here with a testimony about God that right off the bat, addresses the accusation of blasphemy by pointing them back to the only true creator God. And the, the truly brilliant aspect of Stephen's approach is that he's using God's words, which the religious leaders knew well instead of his own, to make his case and to tell his story. So there's instant credibility to his testimony because it is rooted in God's word. And we'll come back to that point in a few minutes. But are you getting the picture here? When we really begin to look at and understand Stephen's testimony before the court, it is really only then that we can truly appreciate how careful and intentional he was about every word that he spoke. And boy, can we ever learn a lesson here from Stephen. I'm sure at times in my own life, I've been as guilty as anyone of using words very carelessly. I know that I have. In Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Okay, our words really matter. And yet it's so easy, it's so easy for me to be careless with my words. And particularly, anytime we're sharing our testimony with others, we should choose our words very thoughtfully. Okay, make, make every word count and make every word about Jesus Christ and what he's done in our lives. Because I think that too often we can make our testimony more about us and less about him. It's easy to make us the focus of our story instead of directing our attention and their attention to Christ. Why do we do that? Well... Because it feels good. It feels good to hear people say, you know, man, you were so brave uh, when you went through that. Or you're such a strong person. Accolades can feel really good. And if we're not careful or really intentional with our testimony, it can become an advertisement for how virtuous we are. When in reality, it's only because of Jesus Christ that any of us can claim any good in our lives. In Philippians 3, 7, and 8, after describing everything that he'd achieved in his life that men would consider impressive, Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
Jesus deserves all of the credit, all of the time, and we should always be careful to attract the attention to him. Our testimony should always promote Jesus Christ. And, and Stephen is masterfully doing just that. He could give a TED talk on giving a testimony, right? This is brilliant what he's doing. There's a form of biblical interpretation called typology, which anticipates Jesus Christ and the laws, events, and, and people of the Old Testament. Typology is fascinating. Uh, if you're into that, because when you study it, you begin to see just how prevalently uh, the Christ is represented throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's striking, in fact. And here in Stephen's testimony, he talks about Abraham. Abraham was called out to be different, to leave his ancestral home, to go to a new land, and to be the father of a new generation through a covenant with God the Father. So too Jesus was called out from heaven to do something totally different, to be the father of a new generation through a covenant with God the Father. Uh, Stephen talks about Joseph, and we certainly don't have time to go through all of the typology, but Joseph was placed by God through the most unlikely series of events in a place of rulership over God's people, ultimately, to save them. And so too was Christ sent by God in such an unlikely, unpredictable way to bring salvation and, and rulership for the children of God, okay? In the next part of Stephen's testimony, he starts to talk about Moses, who again is a type of Christ. Let's read it together from verse 20. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came a voice from the Lord, I am the God of your fathers the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, Go, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they Turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. In verse 38, the Greek word for congregation is ecclesia, which is the characteristic New Testament word for church. And so Stephen's use of it here, he's providing a comparison between Moses his presence with the Israelites throughout the, this whole historical narrative in Christ's presence in the church today. We know that Moses was sent to save, to deliver God's people and to lead them to the promised land, to their inheritance. Likewise, Jesus was sent to save and to deliver and to lead the children of God to our ultimate inheritance. Okay? Stephen's testimony is replete with references to Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus Christ. It's easy to breeze through these stories because we've heard them and think nothing of it. Seems so obvious. But he was saying everything for a reason, all building up to this climax. And this should be this should be a great lesson for us in how we are to share our testimony. Even Jesus, we've already read it, Luke 24. Earlier, he testified about himself to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Again, Luke said, In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All right, clearly, our testimony should always point to Jesus Christ, never to ourselves. It should all be about him and what he has done in our lives. Okay? So our testimony is our story. And our story should always point to him. The third lesson that we learn from Stephen's testimony as we continue reading is that when we testify to what Jesus has done in our lives, we validate the word of God through our story. We, we demonstrate that what the Bible says is true based on our own personal experience that we're sharing with others. Okay, when we testify... We validate the Word of God through our story. I don't mean that the Word of God isn't valid without our testimony. It is valid. But we're living proof of what the Bible says is true. And when we share that, that becomes evident. And as we see the disciples of Christ in the New Testament and even uh, Jesus Himself sharing their testimony, we see them bringing Scripture uh, into the story. Right? In chapter 6, verse 7, which we read last week, just after the church leaders appointed the seven men to help in serving the church, it says the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, that word, word of God, the word word in the Greek is logos. That means, refers to Jesus and John. But here it can refer to the written word, to the spoken word. Right? And to quote Luke 24 for the third time, Again, it says, referring to Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The point is our testimony should always validate the word of God by bringing scriptures into, into the story in a way that is relevant to our experience. And we see here with Stephen who begins to quote scripture... Uh, in his testimony before the, co the court, this very thing, which lends further credibility to his position and relevance in his defense of the gospel. Okay? So let's continue reading. Verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? 
You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Riphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? All right, so Stephen is quoting from uh, the Greek Septuagint version of Amos 5, verses 25 through 27 here, where he points out Israel's idolatry and worship of Moloch, who was the, the Canaanite sun god, and Riphon, which was probably referring to the uh, Egyptian name for Saturn. And the point that he's making is that throughout history, Israel has failed God over and over again by its unfaithfulness to recognize that He is the one true God, Yahweh. And that hasn't changed yet, he's saying. And then he quotes from the first two verses of Isaiah 66 to drive home the point that God doesn't dwell in buildings or houses. He doesn't dwell in the synagogue. Rather, Stephen alludes to the fact that both the tabernacle and the temple pointed to something greater. Okay, so he's telling a story here that is ultimately about Jesus Christ using historical narrative so that they will understand and quoting from Scripture. And all of it is in support of his argument, his response to the court. It's a brilliant testimony. And he uses Scripture, which again, the religious authorities cannot argue with, to validate his testimony. When we're sharing our testimony, it is always beneficial to use a key verse or a passage from the Bible that, that ties in with your story. Because it, it validates what the Bible teaches us through our own personal experience, all right? And so here in this next section of our text, Stephen turns this uh, scriptural history lesson he's giving to the leaders here into a rebuke of their leadership as he now draws them into the story. Okay, and that's the next point of our outline. When we testify, we invite people into our story. Now, admittedly, <laughs> Stephen does it in a rather forceful way. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend this approach uh, unless you either want to be stoned to death or you're, you're full of the Holy Spirit maybe and being directed by him, which Stephen was, of course, which we'll see in a moment. But first, let's see how Stephen, after telling this long story, he goes through all this history, testifying to the truth about God and his people, he now draws his audience into the story. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Okay? He just, he just brought them into the story. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels... And did not keep it. Okay, so clearly, this is the climax. The point to Stephen's testimony. The reason for all of the buildup. It was to paint a picture and then draw his listeners into it. 
So he, he gives them the backstory, story, the, the scriptural and theological support for his argument, using words and descriptions and people and events that his audience would understand well, and then he brings them into the story. He includes his audience in his story, and therefore, it now becomes very personal. And unfortunately for Stephen, his story painted his listeners in a less than attractive light, and they kill him for it, as we'll see. But the point for us here is that our testimony should always draw our listeners into the story. And actually, that's probably not as hard as it may sound, because if our story focuses ultimately on Jesus Christ, then it naturally involves whomever we're sharing it with, right? Because it is actually very understandable. Once I've shared my story with you, assume for a moment that you're an unbeliever. Once I've shared with you what Christ has done in my life, it is then very logical to take that one step further and explain that he wants to do the same thing in your life. And now all of a sudden I've included you in my story. And guess what? It becomes very personal, not only to me, but to you as well. And this is the moment when you're testifying, when you're witnessing to someone that they transition from being a listener, an observer of the story, to a participant. You've just now invited them into your story, and that is typically the point where people will engage with you beyond listening with some type of response. And that's actually uh, exactly what happened with Stephen. Okay, Let's finish reading the chapter, uh, starting at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then just the first sentence of chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. Obviously not the response we're going for. And fortunately for us, we don't hear a lot about stonings in our country today, so I think we're probably safe in that regard. But the point remains, people will generally respond at that moment when you involve them in your story. They may tell you to bug off, go fly a kite, jump off a bridge. They may not be that kind. They may simply walk away from you. Some will try and argue, but maybe... Just maybe, they may say, tell me more. I'd like to know more about what Jesus has done in your life. And you know what? That part, their response to your story, is not your responsibility. That part is up to the Holy Spirit, calling them and their free will to accept or reject the conviction that he brings. Okay, your part is simply to tell your story. Keep it focused on Jesus Christ. Keep it grounded in the word of God. And then invite them in to your story. The rest is up to God. Okay, there's just one more point I want to make today. And I'm going to make it quickly. But it is the fact that when we testify, 
our story stays with people. Uh, you can quote a lot of scripture to people. You can give great talks about theology and doctrine. You can make all kinds of compelling arguments to support your faith in Christ. And most of that will be very easily forgotten by most people. But when you tell a story, a personal story, people don't easily forget. And there's an interesting example of this concerning Stephen and his testimony here. All of the people that were persecuting the early church, out of all of them, there weren't many who excelled at imprisoning and killing Christians and generally wreaking havoc on the body of Christ, quite like Saul of Tarsus. The man who, of course, later became the great Apostle Paul. And we know by the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 that Paul, before his conversion, oversaw the death of Stephen. We just read that. Interestingly enough, a lot of scholars concur that Stephen's testimony must have had a profound effect on Paul. Because later in Acts chapter 22, after Paul's conversion, we, we find, when Paul finds himself in a very similar situation to, to Stephen's here in chapter 7. Paul's telling his own story now and answering the charges against him to the religious leaders while he's in Roman custody and to the, the Roman leaders. And in his testimony, Paul includes Stephen in telling his story. It's fascinating. Of all of the Christians that Paul persecuted and beat and imprisoned and had killed, the one that he brings up when defending himself is Stephen. Why? Many believe it's because Stephen told a story that was not easily forgotten. It stayed with Paul. Okay? If you want to get a message across, put it in a story. And if you really want it to have an impact, make it a personal story and people will remember it. It's a fact. And I have to tell you that I honestly believe if more Christians would spend less time trying to tell people why they're wrong and more time simply sharing their story with others, we might just see a great revival in the church in America. Your testimony, your story is powerful. And God gave it to you, by the way, for a reason. Not to hide it in a basket. He gave it to you to share it. So that others could become a part of his story. So there are a lot of different ways that you can share your story with others. And obviously those opportunities present themselves at different times. In different settings. With different people. And so... It is really important that we take advantage of those occasions when God gives them to us. We should never miss any chance that He affords us to share our story with others. That's how people open themselves up to Christ. It's how people decide to come to your church. It's how people decide to take a, a new direction for their lives and take that first step to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, Revelation 12:11 says, They, meaning the believers, have conquered him, meaning the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Okay? At the beginning of this message, and I'm closing, I made this statement. What every person in our neighborhood needs today, what every 
man and woman and child who is hurting and lost this morning in our city and in the surrounding areas, what every one of them needs is in this building right now sitting in these pews. We possess what they need, but they don't know it, and we don't always know how to offer it. And therein lies our dilemma. And it is one of epic importance if you consider that people's eternity is at stake. So what do we do with this gospel? How, how do we let them know? How do we connect the dots between what we have in the church and what is needed in the world? How do we bridge that gap? The answer to that question is your story. Your story is powerful. Probably far more than you realize. Your story needs to be heard more than you know. And your story will be the key, the, the truth that someone has been waiting to hear that will cause them to finally take that first step toward Christ. But listen to me. Your story will never affect anyone for the cause of Christ if you don't share it. 